Traditionally at Easter, we say Christ is risen, and the response is, he is risen indeed. Let's try that together. Christ is risen. risen But that, of course, begs the question, is he? Or are these just simply nice words that we say every springtime when we get to Easter? Many of you this week, like me, may have watched in horror as the Cathedral of Notre Dame caught fire in the city of Paris. And it was a surreal experience to watch, sort of on video, to read stories about this and to see this amazing building burning. Now, thank the Lord, no one was in it, which is a miracle in and of itself. 12 million people visit this uh, building every day and no one got hurt, for which we are incredibly thankful. But it was a sad thing to watch this beautiful building on fire. And it was moving to me to see people lining the streets, uh, to hear the testimonies about how emotional this was for people. Except when I read some of the testimonies and I heard about some of the things that were going on, there was a little bit of uh, bittersweet mixed uh, messages that were going on here. What I mean is, some people were genuinely mourning the fact this was a house of God, this was a church. It was a steeple that was there to honor Jesus that had burned to the ground and crumpled. But some people seemed to simply be mourning the loss of a national monument in France. And that, that what they were most sad about was that this architectural marvel had suffered this loss. And there was a sense uh, of nostalgia. There was a sense of this is a great monument that we're missing. This is a tourist place. And we want to see that tourist place rebuilt. And I asked myself the question, is that how we feel about Easter? That Easter is some sort of relic from the past that stirs up nostalgia in us or it's part of sort of a ceremony or a rite that we go through. Here it is, springtime. It's time to celebrate Easter and people all over the country and all over the world will celebrate. Perhaps you will decorate Easter eggs today. Maybe you will have little chocolate bunnies and eat the ears off of them. Maybe you'll gather together with family and friends and have great food and millions of people here and around the world will say the words, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. But the question we have to ask is, is it simply like the Cathedral of Notre Dame? Is it simply a monument? Is it a relic from the past? Is it a nice warm idea that we grew up with in society or around us? Or is Jesus really risen from the dead? Well, today what I'd like to offer for you is two pieces of evidence why I and many of us and many people around the world don't think it's simply a relic, but actually believe that a human being named Jesus who died was raised from the dead and is currently seated at the right hand of God in heaven, alive and well, and is Lord over all things. And this is not a story or a metaphor or an idea, but a reality. Two pieces of evidence. One is more objective, and one is more subjective. Let's start with the more objective evidence for why I and many people believe that this Jesus has literally been raised from the dead. 
And I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you. All you do is take one of these Bibles and turn to page 600. Page 600, that's Isaiah chapter 53. It's mostly in the middle if you're kind of looking through and you neither have one of the church Bibles and can't quite find it. Isaiah, it's a bigger book kind of in the middle. Page 600. And after you're there, I want to start by showing you a picture. This is a screen capture of a website. You can go and visit this website yourself. Please not now. (laughs) When you get home, uh, you can do this. And this is a screen capture. And what you're looking at is a digitized version of what's known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. Now, what is the Great Isaiah Scroll? It's a scroll uh, that is currently today in the Israeli Museum. You can go there and see the original. I've been there to see the original. Uh, It was very kind of people to not make us all go there, but to digitize it and allow us to be able to sort of see it and interact with it online. If you Google the Great Isaiah Scroll, it will take you to the website that the Israeli Museum puts out. And the Great Isaiah Scroll is the crown jewel of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which means that thing right there, not the digitized version, but the original one, was found in a cave in a place called Qumran, which is right on the edge of the Dead Sea, in 1947. And this is the crown jewel because it is a copy of the scroll that Isaiah the prophet wrote. This is not the one he wrote. It's a copy of the one he wrote. Uh, When somebody wrote something like this, they made lots and lots of copies and scribes copied them on all sorts of scrolls and they were distributed and spread sort of all over the world. What we found in 1947 is this great Isaiah scroll, the entire book of Isaiah from very ancient time. And so what they've done is this scroll itself has been carbon-14 dated at least four different times on four separate occasions by four different scientific communities. Every single time that scroll, the one you're looking at, has been dated to at least about 200 BC, meaning 200 years before Jesus, that scroll was moving around and was alive and well uh, sort of in in the community of Qumran. They had a copy of the book of Isaiah from 200 years before Jesus was born. It's also, that one, has been dated by paleographic means, which means that scholars sort of study the script of it. Uh, It may be hard to read. If you go online later, you'll be able to see this. We just kind of highlighted chapter 53, verse 9. Wherever you move your cursor, it kind of shows you. That is the Hebrew for chapter 53 that we're about to look at, verse 9. People study that script, and all of them have dated this to somewhere around 150 B.C., which means... All scholars, whether believers or not believers or anything like that, all scholars acknowledge that this document was around for about 200 to 150 years before Jesus. We have record of that. This was floating around. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the English translation of that document. 
So don't worry if you can't read Hebrew. I wouldn't be able to take us through that if I wanted to anyway. We're going to look at this together in our English translation, and we're going to see what it says. So you're in Isaiah 53. That's just a translation of this, a document that was around hundreds of years before Jesus. To get the context of what we're going to hear in Isaiah 53, I need you to back up just a few verses to Isaiah 52, verse 13. So we kind of jumped into the middle of the scroll. You may have noticed up there on that scroll, there were not big numbers that said 53. We added those numbers years and years later. So we kind of jumped into the middle of the scroll. So to make sure we understand where we are, chapter 52, verse 13, in your Bible, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it says the suffering and glory of the servant. Right beneath that, it says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is a prophecy about a servant of God who's coming in the future from Isaiah's point of view. So Isaiah, we believe, was written about 700 years before Jesus. The copy of the great Isaiah scroll, we have that one from at least 200 years before Jesus. And in that scroll, it says, there's coming a servant who is God's servant who will obey, act wisely, and be highly exalted. Verses 14, 15, chapter 53, verse 1, 2, and 3, we looked at last week as a church. If you're interested in those verses, I just invite you to go online and listen to the sermon from last week. But now this morning, we're picking it up in verse 4. Isaiah 53, talking about that servant, which is prophesied, will come. Verse 4. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, <clears throat> stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. <clears throat> and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what this prophecy is saying is that this servant who is going to come from Isaiah's point of view is going to suffer for our sins, that God is going to lay on him all the stuff that you and I and all the people have done wrong. The image here is we like sheep have gone astray. To use probably a more modern or one that we might resonate with, we all like cats. We do our own thing. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. That's what we're like, every single one of us. At some point, at many points, decide, hey, look, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm gonna live my life the way I want to live my life. And every one of us have chosen to do things to disobey God, to ignore God, to refuse to come when God calls us, to not do the things that God wants us to. Every single one of us have embraced selfishness. We've all done things to hurt others. We've been hurt by others. You heard some testimonies today. Every single one of us has a story of ways in which we embrace disobedience, 
We ignored God. We'd set out to live our life the way we want to live our life. Young, old, every one of us. And the amazing thing is God says he's going to take all that stuff and put it on this servant. That he is going to be punished for our sins. Keep reading. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now we find out not only is this servant going to suffer because of your mistakes and my mistakes, he's going to do so innocent of his own sin. That apart from anything he did wrong, he was going to suffer because of our sins, not his own. And in his innocence, he was going to be put to death. It's poetic language, but it's very visual. He will be cut off from the land of the living and nobody of his generation is going to protest. Meaning when he dies, nobody's going to try to stop it. Including even himself. He's going to be silent. He's not going to raise a fuss. He's not going to sign petitions. He's not going to try to get his death to not happen. Keep going. The prophecy continues. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, listen to this, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And here, lo and behold, we find out that this servant who suffers for your sins and my sins, who is innocent, who nobody protested his death, who didn't fight against his death, who was assigned a grave with the rich and the wicked, this person will be raised from the dead. It says, even though he offered himself to death and he was cut off from the land of the living, he will be made alive. And the crazy thing is, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. 
This is not written after the fact to try to describe Jesus's life. This was written down and copies were sent all over the Middle East, all over North Africa and Europe at that time. Copies of this were available hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, that prophecy that you've had for hundreds of years, that Isaiah 53, that's about me. And then you look and you realize that Jesus was not accused of his own sins. That nobody leveled charges that stuck against him. That everybody who engaged with him, including during his trial, he was declared to be innocent of all charges. But he said that he was dying for your sins and for my sins. And at his trial, when you would think, here is this righteous person who's done nothing wrong. All he's done is miracles and heal people and teach people and try to bless people. He doesn't defend himself. And nobody tries to stop his crucifixion. His disciples abandon him. The crowds chant for him to be crucified. Rome accedes to it. The Jewish leaders, everybody says, kill him. Nobody protests his death. And he dies. On Good Friday, he dies. And he's buried in a rich man's tomb. And on Easter Sunday morning, he rises from the dead in fulfillment of a prophecy that he didn't write that was written long before he was born. And the question you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, what are you going to do with something like this? Everybody agrees the great Isaiah scroll was written. We have a copy of it from before Jesus walked on this earth. And the question you have to ask yourself is, who in the world would ever write down somebody's life was going to be like this hundreds of years before it happened and then have someone come along and actually fulfill it? Did his disciples make this up? Is this just a coincidence? You can ask yourself the question, who in the history of mankind, I can't think of any examples, where it was prophesied that they would live this kind of life, die this kind of death, and be raised from the dead afterward, who else could possibly be a candidate for this? I don't know a single person of whom there was a prophecy, this person will die and be raised from the dead, and lo and behold, it happened, except for one. And Jesus came and said, yeah, that's me. This is happening to me. I will be raised from the dead. And three days later, after his death, he was. That, to me, is more objective evidence. It's written down. You can go read it. We just read it. You can examine it. You can go online and you can Google, like, how old is this scroll? How long was this around? Everybody agrees this was written long before Jesus was born. And I find that to be compelling. And I think, who could do something like this except God? Because whether it sits well with us or not, it's very clear this was God's plan. 
that he was going to send a servant who was going to suffer and die for your sins and for mine and that God would raise him from the dead. This is God's plan. And I think only God can pull this off. That's the more objective evidence as to why I believe that Jesus being raised from the dead is not some sort of nostalgic relic from the past, but is the actual reality. Now let me give you the more subjective. Now it's subjective, so that makes it a little weird. So what I want you to do is I want you right now, just sort of in the quiet of your heart, to do something for me. It's going to seem strange. I get it. But if after hearing that there is actually a prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus came to be, for which he fulfilled all of those things, why not at least give this a try? See, the second reason why I believe that Jesus is not dead, but alive, is because God continues to speak through him to me. And so what I'd like you, it's super subjective, I get it. What I'd like you to do in the quiet of your heart, your neighbors don't have to know that you're doing this. Nobody has to know, just you, you and God. I just want you to say to God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're alive, just say something to my heart. Okay, that's all I want you to do. You're like, this is really, I get it. Just give it a try. Nothing happens, what have you lost? So just take a moment in the quiet of your heart, ask God if he's real, if Jesus is raised from the dead, to do something subjectively to speak to you now. So take a moment and do that. And now turn a page to Isaiah 55. And I'm going to deliver a message to you that I believe is from God to you. And what you've asked God in the quiet of your heart is if this is more than just words on a page, if this is more than just some relic on the past, that somehow God needs to impress that upon you. I don't know how he'll do that. There might be some sense in which when you listen to this message from God, in which you think, maybe that's true. There may be some burning in your heart. There may be some emotion you experience. There may be some way in which you go, well, I don't know if that's true, but I sure hope it is. I don't know what will happen, but we've asked him. So now let's listen to the message. And I believe what you're going to hear is not ultimately simply words that I'm reading to you, but a message from God to your heart. This is what God says. Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is God inviting you, saying to you this morning, right now in the quietness of your own heart. Listen, all this stuff, you heard the testimonies, all this stuff you've been pursuing, success, 
relationships, money, job security, sex, fun, enjoyment, comfort, whatever it may be. Ultimately, you know deep in your heart those things don't ultimately satisfy. And God is saying to you this morning, I know that. I see that. I see what you are pursuing. I see what you're trying to fill your life with. And God is saying to you today, come. Why are you spending your life on stuff that will not satisfy you? Why are you fighting so hard for those possessions or for those experiences? Are those really filling you up? And God says, come. Come and I will give you food to eat. Come and I will give you water to drink. The invitation is, come. Verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God for he will freely pardon. You heard Abby's testimony. Satan doesn't want you to believe that God somehow will forgive you. But please, are you hearing the words? He's saying to you, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up. It doesn't matter how far you've been. It doesn't matter how many years you have been ignoring. None of that matters. God is saying, today, If you will seek me today, if you will come, I will have mercy on you. This is not about punishment. This is not about judgment. This is about God saying, Jesus has already paid for your sins. All the stuff you've done wrong, I've already laid it on him. And now God is saying to you, come. Come and experience forgiveness. Come and experience grace. Come and experience the God who created you and this world saying to you, I love you and I forgive you. Come. Verse eight. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. What God is saying to you is that these words on a page are not simply words on a page. This is God's thoughts. These are God's words and he is telling you this morning, I am sending them to you for the purpose of giving you joy and peace. That this is not merely a nostalgic exercise. This is not merely part of a tradition. This is not merely a relic from the past. God is saying today, I appointed these words to come to you today for the purpose of rescuing you. I see what you're going through. I know the pain that you're enduring. I know what's been done to you. I know what you've done. And this morning, God is saying to you, come. Come and experience forgiveness. Come and be saved. Come and be rescued. Come and have a different story. Come and be a new person. And the second reason why I believe that Jesus 
is alive is because when I hear those words, I hear a pull. I hear a call. I hear the truth of my life. I hear something in my soul. And all the question you have to ask yourself is there is objective evidence. You can go through archaeological stuff. You can look at texts. You can look at prophecy. You can look at evidence. Fantastic. There's also subjective evidence. Here you are in a place where God claims he's present. He claims that these are not simply words on a page, but his voice talking to you. And if at any point your heart says, man, I hope that's true. I hope I could have peace. I hope I could be forgiven. That's God speaking to your heart. And when that other voice or that other thought says, no, it couldn't be for me, God's saying, no, it is. When you think, oh, no, no, they just want me to come because they want to have me part of what's going on. No, it's God calling you. And if your heart burns within you, if there's a sense in which, please let this be true. That's God speaking to your heart. And I know this seems weird. And this may be your first experience to have something like that happen. But if these feel like more than words on a page, if they feel like an actual invitation from God, then you can know that God is calling you. And what's your response? It's the simplest thing in the world. The reason why we started with that request in the quietness of your heart, nobody knew if you made that or not, just God. And if he heard you say to him, okay, God, if you're real, say something. If you felt anything, all you have to do in response, in the quietness of your heart, with no one around you having to know, you just simply say, yes. You see, you've been invited. You heard the invitation. The invitation is not from me. The invitation is from God. And if God is inviting you, and that sort of stirring in your heart, that sort of movement, that sort of longing for this to be true, that sort of hoping, yes, I hope that I'm part of this. Yes, I would like Jesus to pay for all of my sins. Yes, I want to believe that he's been raised from the dead. Whatever that is, all you have to do is say yes in response to it. God's invited you. When you say yes, then he responds and gives you eternal life through Jesus. There are two reasons why I believe that this is not just a relic from the past, but a reality in which we live. One is more objective. I think to myself, how is it possible that anybody could have written down hundreds of years before the Holy Week events came to be and was so sure he could pull it off that he sent copies of it all over the place and then fulfilled every word of it in a way that nobody could ever claim that anyone else has ever fulfilled that. And I think to myself, that feels compelling to me. But I also, in the quietness of my heart, in a way that I couldn't explain to you, felt this God calling to me. And because of those, 
When I say Christ is risen, I mean Christ is risen. He's risen. He's risen indeed.